Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. are very welcome back to Flop Culture. My name is Fanula. I hope you're well. This is a podcast where we talk mainly about flops and I also bring you up to speed on everything that's happened in pop culture this week, that week, all the weeks. So happy to have you here. Please follow the show on social media. We're on Instagram and we're on TikTok. We're not on one Uh, platform which will be explained later Uh, it's flop culture underscore pod if you want to follow us there please do write and review the show wherever you're listening if you leave a five-star review on apple podcasts with your nickname i will recommend a bop or flop to you personalized at the end of next week's episode so do get them in and it helps people find the show as well if you want more content patreon.com forward slash flop culture that's where you need to go Uh, one episode i'd like to shout out given there's a lot of celebration around this particular flop at the minute. There was a lost episode of Flop Culture that was actually meant to be a main episode, but technology snafus, all that jazz. It didn't happen, but it now lives on Patreon, and it's all about Crossroads, the Britney Spears classic. And I was very excited to be joined by Claire from Celebrity Memoir Book Club for that one, Claire Parker. So if you want to go listen to that, it's on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash flopculture. Myself and Owen Keen, the gorgeous Owen Keen, uh, we're going to be digging into Fleabag season two very soon as well. If you want to join us over there, please do. We'd love to have you. Now, let's get into the news. I swear to God, this isn't going to become a Taylor Swift podcast, right? I, and whatever my biases and all that jazz, but she's just, the girl makes news, right? She's, she is responsible for the news industry. You know what I mean? Her and maybe Travis Kelsey this week, rumored new boyfriend. Who is Travis Kelsey? How did this all begin? Well, we have to go back to the beginning for that, don't we? Uh, 
Taylor Swift, previously in a relationship with the actor Joe Alwyn. They broke up in April of this year. They were going out for six years. A lot of fans thought they were endgame, no pun intended, uh, but then they broke up. In between that, uh, Taylor dated Maddie Healy, which we do not talk about for obvious reasons. Um, and she was, you know, she's been seen out having fun. And we mentioned last week she was out with Sophie Turner uh, in the wake of Sophie Turner's divorce from Joe Jonas. Now, seemingly, seemingly, my favorite word in journalism and media, Taylor is spending a lot of time with Travis Kelsey, who is an American footballer. He plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. I asked my NFL friends, shout out Sham. I asked Sham. Sham said he's very good. Probably the best, the best in the game at the minute. He said he could go more granular on it. I said, respectfully, I don't care. It just, is he good? And Sham said yes. So there you go. And they're spending a lot of time together. For anyone who's not very familiar with Travis Kelsey, 33, also born in 1989. That's significant because Taylor Swift is obsessed with numerology for some reason. Um, he was previously dating a sports journalist called Kayla Nicole. They were going out for a very long time, uh, but they broke up towards the end of last year. Prior to that, he had an e-reality show in 2016 called Catching Kelsey, which revolved around him finding a girlfriend. I think he was dating like 50 people at the one time. Good if you can get it, girls, am I right? Um, anyway, whoever won that, he ended up dating for a few months, but, you know, didn't work out. He has basically been actively pursuing Taylor publicly since July. I know people have dug up, like, other interviews in which he played a game of, like, Marry, marry, kiss, kill in the States uh, with some publication around the time that he was promoing this dating show in which he was asked, kiss, marry, kill, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, and significantly he said Taylor Swift. I actually just think, I don't think there's anything in that. I don't think he was manifesting it at that point, right? But definitely since July when he went to the Eras tour himself at Arrowhead Stadium, which is where his, that's his team stadium, their home turf, he went to see her and he talked about the experience on the podcast he does with his brother, Jason Kelsey. Uh, and he explained the whole phenomenon around friendship bracelets at Taylor Swift concerts, that fans exchanged them, whatever else. And he, and I quote, said, uh, I received a bunch of them being there, but I wanted to give Taylor Swift one with my number on it. And his brother asked, your number as in 87, as in the number he, he plays with, or your phone number? You know which one, Kelsey joked back. Um, he, yeah, so he he basically said he was kind of bought hurt that he didn't get to speak to her, but like obviously that she probably saves her voice because the show was so long, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Been kind of dropping loads of hints ever since that in other interviews. And then he was asked about it directly on the Pat McAfee show uh, about the headlines and about headlines around his personal life and whether it bothered him. And he came back and said, I threw the ball in her court, her being Taylor Swift. I told her, I've seen you rock a stage in Arrowhead and you might have to come see me rock the stage at Arrowhead. We'll see what happens in the near future. So kind of, this is all happening. And I'm like, okay, this man is like really actively thirsty. This is never going to go anywhere. But like, God loves a trier, yada, yada, yada. Bigger fool me because next thing you know, Taylor Swift is sitting next to his mom at Arrowhead Stadium this week as they were playing the Chicago Bears. This is also significant because Taylor Swift has come out vocally talking about another team before, like owns a jersey. I can't remember the name of the team. I'll get it in a second. But yeah, she's sitting there with his mom, shouting, screaming, roaring, having a vodka cran, having some chicken fingers, potentially having some ranch. People don't know whether it's ranch or mayonnaise. It's all, it's all go. Uh, they're spotted walking out together. Uh, yeah. So are they together? 
Who knows? Is it PR? Who knows? I think it's a bit of both. I think in the same way kind of with Maddie Healy and I don't I just don't think she anticipated the backlash and then was like, oh, you know, actually, maybe not. Sorry, the team that Taylor is the jersey for is uh, the Eagles. As far as I'm aware, I don't know where they're from. Not the Sky, presumably, uh, or Nests. It's a football team, whatever. Anyway, the Taylor Swift effect in full force here, even if they're not going out herself and Travis. Sales for his jersey have gone up by almost 400%. Nutso, absolutely nutso. And Travis himself, on Instagram, he has gained over 300,000 followers. And that was in like just the 24 hours after she was seen at the game. So it's probably even more since. Nuts. Now, I'm pretty sure he has a podcast coming out this week with his brother, a new episode. And it seems like they're going to talk about it. I don't know if they're doing that thing on social media where they're just hinting they're going to talk about it so that people listen. If it's going to be a whole, we're just friends. You know, she came, we had a laugh whatever, all in good fun, all in good jest. To be honest, I'll be actively annoyed about that. As much as I don't want him going on, given all the dirty, juicy details, you know, be a respectful date in that sense. I don't need to know everything. I'm also like, do not come on here and say we're just friends after all that. You know what I mean? Take it home, Travis. Take it home. She needs to be in her hot sports star era, as far as I'm concerned as well. No more Brits either, you know? We know how I feel about that, Right. Uh, separately as well and I suppose also why people maybe think this is PR uh, Taylor has just announced that she's bringing the Ares tour to cinemas worldwide which includes Ireland from October 13th you can see the Ares tour in the cinema I got two tickets they sent me back now I got IMAX tickets they sent me back 49 good Irish euros and that's before a minstrel has even passed my juicy lips sick but I don't have tickets for the concert so that's that's what I'm going with. You know what I mean? If I can't go, at least I'm going to see it in cinema with a big fat box of popcorn. Can't wait. Let me know. Did you get tickets? What do you think about this relationship? Please. I need to know. It's taking over so much of my brain space. The writer strike is ending. Thanks be to God. Screenwriters in the US uh, have reached a deal with studio bosses that has ended the strike that has lasted nearly five months, the longest strike in recent history. Uh... They were striking in a row over pay and the use of artificial intelligence in the industry, as we all know. Um, and it's the longest strike to affect Hollywood in decades, as I said, and halted lots of film and TV productions, including Stranger Things, The Last of Us, many, many more. Stranger Things writers announced this week that they have gone back to writing the show, which is very exciting. But I do wonder, because the actor strike is ongoing, and look, I think the positive assumption would be that the actors will follow suit, but we don't know that and we can't guarantee that. Uh, there's no guarantee that they're going to go back, which means, like, by the time Stranger Things comes back for the fifth and final season, the children are going to be 47 years old. You know what I mean? They're not going to be children at all. You know? There's not even a joke about them being made to be in college. Like, they're going to be... They're going to be in their mid-30s and disillusioned and ringing people about pensions. You know what I mean? And I... Is that the scariest thing of all, girls? Is that scarier than the upside down? Potentially. Potentially. Um, but delighted for the writers. Delighted, delighted they uh, struck out and they're getting paid what they deserve because I'm so glad for television and I'm so glad for really good television and it's what they deserve. Anyway, from a bop, the strike ending, to this week's flop. Let's get into it. X, 
The artist, formerly known as Twitter, was once the go-to platform for real-time updates and breaking news, and its unique charm made it indispensable for millions as it became a place where communities could flourish. But over the years, we saw a shift in user behavior and a growing disillusionment with the platform. Twitter began facing challenges in combating harassment, hate speech, the spread of fake news, the struggle to monetize the platform. And that was even before the significant CEO change. Joining me to discuss and explain Twitter's flop era is tech journalist and author of the book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence and Power, is tech journalist Taylor Lorenz. Taylor Lorenz, it is an honor to have you on Flop Culture. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I am a huge fan of your work. I can't remember the first thing that I read of yours, to be honest, but I always remember my background is previously in journalism. I'm not in journalism anymore, but I remember reading your stuff around creators and especially in the early iterations of TikTok and just being fascinated with you and hugely appreciative of you for taking those beats very seriously and being interested in the same things that I was interested in and writing about them properly and giving them the time they deserved. Um, So as I said, it is a huge honour to have you here and have you on for this season. For anyone who's maybe not super familiar with you and your work, could you give them a little bit of background as to what you cover? Because it's very interesting. I think flat culture listeners will be similarly interested in what you do. Yeah, um, I cover the content creator industry and I cover just online culture generally. Um, I cover tech from the user side. So it's less about like covering kind of like who's the next Facebook CEO and more like how do people use, you know, these platforms and obviously the influencers that, uh, you know, manipulate them and grow audiences on them and all this sort of like craziness, craziness of the internet, like meme culture, sometimes gaming, all that stuff. What brought you into that space? Were you just interested or was there like another reason? Were you seeing this crazy growth in certain platforms in certain areas? And you were like, I need me a bit of this. I need to figure out what the hell is going on here. Yeah. Well, I started on Tumblr. Um, if people remember that it's been a while now, I was talking to some young person the other day that was like, Oh, Tumblr, you know, that was back in the day. It's still around. Oh, um, that's I know. I felt like a boomer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, but I, I started in tw- 2009 as a blogger on Tumblr and um, kind of, you know, leaned very heavily into blogging and then wrote for a lot of digital media sites um, and then kind of, yeah, started writing for more and more legacy publications and um, eventually found my way to the New York Times. And then I left the New York Times after a few years to come to the Washington Post uh, about a year ago. Love it. I'm just obsessed. We obviously, you're here to plug a book, which I'm very excited about. And we'll talk about a little bit more at the end. But obviously with flop culture, each episode is usually about a specific flop. And usually I let my guests pick. But given your background and everything that's been going on in the last even six months, three months, one month, I figured there's kind of no bigger social media flop at the minute than Twitter. X, don't recognize X, whatever. We'll get into that. How, I suppose, did Twitter start as a platform and a micro-blogging platform? And what are your earliest memories of it? Yeah, I actually write in my book all about Twitter's beginnings and sort of the earliest era of 
usage. Um, I mean, it started as this very, you mentioned microblogging, this sort of way to post like short status messages. It actually started as a text platform, like on your phone, you would text and it was sort of, you know, it was this like way to kind of like give short updates um, about your life or where you are. People used it a lot in early South by Southwest days to be like, hey, I'm going to the barbecue here or whatever. Um, And then it sort of moved into this platform where people started to share news and information and have these like sort of distinct personalities online. Um, And that was kind of more around 2010 um, after Facebook rolled out newsfeed to kind of compete with Twitter. um, You just saw more and more people kind of sharing for the internet and for public consumption. And um, I write in my book about a lot of the early like Twitter parody accounts. I don't know if you remember, there was this whole era in like the early 2010s where like there was like a one called like Bronx Zoo Cobra or something. It was it was this like cobra that had escaped the escaped the Bronx Zoo. Someone made a Twitter account. It would get like thirty thousand followers. But it was this really, I mean, transformative platform because it was the first text based social platform. You know, it was like not not that that wasn't a blog. Like there was obviously Tumblr. It was kind of had some social functionality, but it was primarily a blogging platform. And same with other blogging platforms before it. Twitter was this like way to kind of essentially blog like on the go in these short one hundred and forty character messages. What can you tell us about the founder, Jack Dorsey, then? Like, what was his vision for Twitter? (laughs) How did he come? I mean, do we have all night? We don't. But, I mean, what was his vision for the platform? And, yeah, I mean, kind of stumbled upon a goldmine in some ways. And then in others, I mean, just beyond, beyond. Yeah, I talk about this in my book, but I mean, none of these Silicon Valley tech CEOs had any idea what they were doing or what they would ultimately build. And, you know, Jack's goal was not not to build like the next giant like social network news platform. Like no one was even really thinking of that at the time. I think they were, I mean, it started as a podcasting company called Odeo um, and then pivoted to Twitter. It was very haphazard. Um, the early founders of Twitter, there's a great book actually by the journalist Nick Bilton called Hatching Twitter that gets into sort of this whole early era of like the founders and just how like kind of bumbling they were. Um, but Jack eventually, I mean, Jack sort of eventually decided that he had this vision for it to be this like kind of you know, space for everybody to share kind of thoughts. It, there was a lot of optimism in the early Twitter days. You have to remember this was the time of like the Arab Spring. Remember that? And like everyone thought like, oh, Twitter is going to be this force for democracy in the world and citizen journalism and, you know, news organizations embraced it so hard. And obviously we see how that shaped out. It did the exact opposite. It's just, it's not like it to even see where it is now. It's it's laughable but it's just it's not even remotely funny um are there any moments that stick out to you when you think of the social juggernaut that twitter was i know you mentioned some parody accounts there but are there any are there any kind of pivotal access moments where you were like oh yeah oh yeah this is huge like this is a thing this is impacting news this is impacting celebrity this is impacting society what are those moments for you so in 2009, um, this plane, I think it was Sully Salzberger or whatever, it was the pilot, they eventually made a movie out of all this, landed this plane on the Hudson River and people had to, you know, escape. And um, it was such a moment for Twitter because actually that news broke on Twitter first. And that was the first time where I think it was somebody on the wing of the plane or one of the rescuers actually tweeted updates. And again, that had never, that sort of real-time access to news information was a totally new 
thing. Like before that, you'd have to wait for like CNN.com to like update their homepage. You know, there was no kind of organic discovery of news content. So it was really transformative and really kind of opened people's eyes to kind of what Twitter could be. Another big moment was in April 2013 with the Boston bombing, um, when there was, again, this real-time coverage of this news event. Um, between Twitter and Reddit, there was actually tons of misinformation spreading. Um, you know, it was a lot of people sort of searching for this searching for the perpetrator and misidentifying the perpetrator. And a lot of people tweeting out basically live updates from police scanners, which are also notoriously unreliable. And I skipped over one, two in 2012 was Hurricane Sandy. So it was like the, and it's funny that all these, I mean, they all happened on the East Coast, actually. It's just like three, you know, I guess two of them happened in New York, but these were all really formative events for early Twitter because it showed the power of the platform as a news platform, as a real-time information platform, and as a social platform where people were like, you know, seeking, they were sort of like bonding over these events and talking and dis- discussing things, right? Like, and I think, um, yeah, just really, I mean, that just kicked off like Twitter's success. And and shortly after that, you know, Twitter actually acquired Vine, which was incredibly prescient of them. And I think had they not mismanaged that app into the ground, it would have really been transformative. Unfortunately, in classic Twitter faction, fashion, they destroyed and shut down the app. But, um, but yeah. R.I.P. Vine. What could have been? It's kind of, obviously mm-hmm. I know this episode is about Twitter, but like it's insane to think of the lasting impact that Vine has, even how it exists still in, you know, the, the compilation videos on YouTube. And then they've migrated to like TikTok and they still like, you'll get them on Instagram Reels occasionally. It's just, who would have ever thought, you know, who would have ever yeah. thunk it? I'm very excited to read about that in your book as a, as a past Vine lover and a still Vine lover, I just... There's so much stuff about Vine in my book, so much unreported stuff about Vine, so I think people will find it Oh, Taylor, you tease. This is, I'm already excited. <laughs> you don't need to get me any more excited, but I'm sure the <laughs> listeners now, smack that pre-order button, please, please, God. Um, in terms of, I suppose, celebrities and kind of early adopters of Twitter, because we've seen it even... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And with TikTok being kind of new kid on the block social network and how much kind of the early adopters like we'll say like Charlie Puth is an example there's loads of others like how much they've benefited from being kind of early on the platform and using the platform and using it well who are the names that kind of stand out for you when it comes to those early like seminal days of Twitter well I had read about this in the book too but there was this famous race between Ashton Kutcher and CNN to a million followers it was 
who is going to be the first Twitter user with a million followers? I remember this. Remember that? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. And um, Ashton Kutcher won, Um, which actually is very funny because that kind of foreshadowed, I think, a lot of the future of Twitter, which is this focus on individuals and not brands. Um, But yeah, they were racing to a million followers. Ashton Kutcher, of course, he's, you know, he's always sort of adapting tech platforms early, but in addition to him, you had so many celebrities and it's hard to remember, but before celebrities all went to Instagram and Sarah Fryer's book, No Filter, which I have behind me is a great book on Instagram that talks about this, you know, what happened, but um, they were all on Twitter. They were all using Twitter and, um, you know, I mean, every major celebrity under the sun, Jessica Alba, you know, Mariah Carey, like Paris Hilton, like they're all Lindsay Lohan. These were all Twitter users. And then once it, the Instagram was able to capture them eventually, and they all sort of now at this point, I wrote a piece last year, celebrities are all off Twitter pretty much. But Chrissy Teigen, famous Twitter user. Indeed. Indeed. When was that specific turning point then and in turn like how where did the Venn diagrams like intersect in terms of Elon Musk looming like a horrible shadow and then just becoming the Venn diagram intersecting you know what I mean like what basically what happened Taylor it used to be good and now it's so bad what happened well I know it had you know Twitter had this thing where like so by the mid 2015 like by 2015 ish like by mid the mid 2010s Instagram had stolen pretty much all the big celebrities because celebrities realized it's actually much better to just post a picture and you don't have to say, you don't have to worry about saying anything or having your words, you know, quoted anywhere. You can Mm. just sort of post a picture. So Instagram was really successful in attracting the famous people and celebrities away from Twitter. Twitter got very political and also became a really, again, like this big place for journalism and news media. Um, I think in 2016, that election was a crazy election. Um, and it, but it was very much like a Twitter election. And I think when Trump took hold, there was this reckoning. And I, I write about this in my book as well in 2017 across all the social platforms, but especially Twitter, Twitter and YouTube. But but Twitter, people started to look at the rise of extremism on Twitter and be like, okay, wait, we have a problem. Obviously, Gamergate had happened, which was this online harassment movement against women in the gaming ecosystem earlier in 2014. But it was still sort of like, this niche, pro- like there was online harassment, but it was not like per- as pervasive on the platform in 2014, 2015, even into 2016. With the Donald Trump's election, there was this reckoning where people were like, oh shit, social platforms can actually be used for really bad things. And maybe there's a lot of extremism that is being ushered in. I mean, you have to remember, they didn't even ban Alex Jones until 2018 or 2019 from Twitter. Which I mean, they had all these people. I mean, what? Milo Yiannopoulos, like- Mike Cernovich. They have. Twitter facilitated the rise of so many far-right content creators and influencers that we're still stuck with today because Twitter allowed them to amass these massive audiences, which they then boosted their YouTube channels with. And it's horrible. So um, so that was sort of like when, I would say 2017 is like when like the cracks started to show. Also, Twitter had Twitter was like sort of famously not profitable. They were forced to shut down Vine because they couldn't manage it and they had alienated all the big creators. So like they didn't really have a good product strategy. Like they weren't evolving into video, like the rest of the internet. And it was on life support. Obviously they had Dick Costolo, Costolo, I don't know how you say his last name, the, the CEO that kind of came in. And then before it went back to Jack and, and Jack, you know, Jack's not a good, he sort of has his own weird ideologies. And I think he was just not a great business manager for Twitter. 
So I would say when Elon came in, Twitter was very much on life support. Mm. Like it was already on life support. And when Elon took over, I actually think a lot, there was a lot of optimism. Like people were like, look, Elon's a little bit brain poisoned, but, um, Elon's a little bit kooky crazy, but who knows? But we'll see what it could happen. Like maybe it'll be good. Like, I mean, the thing is, is that Twitter was sort of atrophying and it would have had this very slow death had Elon not taken over. It was not like Twitter was on, on a good path. It was sort of already sick and dying. Um, and then Elon took over and it was like, just like pouring poison. Like, you know, it's like he lit the entire thing on fire. He, you know, he took over last fall and immediately um, started banning people such as myself, journalists that he disagreed with. Elon is sort of like the most anti-free speech tech CEO that we have today. Um, He is just, it's crazy. I mean, he just started rolling back all this stuff. He brought back, you know, countless accounts that were previously banned for harassment and abuse and it's gotten really bad, but yeah. (laughs) What's the experience been like for staff there the staff that are left the staff that are left on twitter and obviously there were these there was this these mass layoffs as well initially like it must have been a very challenging environment and probably still continues to be as you said elon is continuously bringing in these people that were actively harassing people uh you know taking away features that like aren't just there for fun like the block feature is there for a purpose it's there to prevent harassment is there to protect users like that must be so hard for anyone working there there's not many people that work there by choice at this point i mean most people a lot of people there are stuck on visas or they have family circumstances where they're i mean everyone's trying to get out and i the very few people that i know that are still at twitter are all trying to get out. It's a, it's a hellscape. Elon doesn't know what he's doing. He just sort of made, it's like very Donald Trump in the sense that like, he sort of makes decisions based off just whatever the last person told him who walked out of the room. Like there's no strategy. He's Elon himself has zero understanding of social products. Zero. Like he doesn't understand the value of content creators for his platform. So he sort of was like kicked off every major reliable news organization and, influential person. And now he's just got, um, he's sort of facilitating the rise of this whole new class of far-right extremists. Is this the first example of, because I know he's talked about like bringing it or like maybe potentially is, I'm going to be honest, a lot of, I've had to tune out of a lot of the headlines surrounding Twitter and X and Elon because I'm just like, this is beyond grim, whatever. But is this the first example of someone trying to bring in like generative AI in favor of like an actual active workforce? Because I know that's something he's always been on about, but I don't know if something, if it's, I don't know if it's something he's put into practice. Is that the case or? No, he hasn't put, no, he hasn't done any of that. What he's done is just like cut costs. So he's just fired everyone and sort of like, that's why the app is breaking. There's really lax security. He's cut off all the APIs. Like it's just, it's more, it's just sort of just like a broken down house that's in like slow disarray. Um, but he can't, he hasn't really successfully automated anything because you can't necessarily, you can't automate product development. Like you need product people, you need engineers, you need designers, and he's fired everyone. Let's talk X. Let's talk about the X in the room, shall we? I mean, what's the backstory behind X? Like, why? Why? Oh my God, it's so funny. Well, let me say, it's always saying, Elon Musk got ousted from PayPal in part because he kept trying to rename the company X. So Elon Musk's company was acquired, he had a payments company that was acquired by PayPal. 
So Elon Musk is involved in PayPal now. And literally, they pushed him out of the company in part because he was he was going around everyone's back trying to rename the company X. He has been, for whatever reason, it's like a 13-year-old boy, just obsessed with the name X for so long. And it's a terrible name. It's it's something that you can barely pronounce in certain languages. Like, it's just, it's bizarre. And, you know, he's always sort of talked about this vision for sort of like an everything app. Like, he wants it to be kind of... Um, no, is it WeChat? What's the main big social Chinese Weibo? It is WeChat, isn't no. it? We WeChat, yeah. He wants it to be this like everything app where basically it's like payments. You can order an Uber. You can get food. You can also you, you can do everything in once in this app. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked for that. Nobody. Our tech landscape is so different than China's tech landscape that it's like it doesn't. It makes no sense. Um, and yeah, it's it's he has a delusion that. I guess he's going to do this with Twitter, but he's, it's not really, he's not really going to do that. Twitter, I think is an ideological project for him as much as a tech business project. With that in mind, then what does the future hold for Twitter slash X? Can you see it weathering this storm or is it dead as a doddle? No, I think Twitter is pretty dead. I don't see it. I don't see it coming back even remotely to its, Relevance because I don't think Elon wants it to be, you know, the things that he would have to do to make it a mainstream social platform. He doesn't want to do because he himself has gotten completely Twitter brained. Like he, he's, I mean, he's, he got so much money so quickly. I think he has very bad judgment and he can't see past himself. Like I can't, I don't think he, he is, would be able to ever transform it into anything like Facebook or TikTok or anything like that. Could you see, any of its clones taking over in terms of popularity? You're seeing a lot of people migrate to like Mastodon and like Blue Sky and stuff like that. But is it just, is it to quote Jojo, too little, too late? You know, have we all moved on collectively? Yeah, I think we have moved on. I, I don't think that there will be a one-to-one replacement of Twitter. I think, sure, there'll be a community on Blue Sky. There'll be a community on Threads. There'll be a community on, um, you know, Mastodon for tech people, but there's never going to be a one-to-one Twitter replacement. And I mean, unless Thread succeeds, but I don't think that, that I think Facebook has such a contentious relationship with news and, and, um, news is so corded, so corded the success of Twitter. Sorry. Um, I just don't see it happening. We still don't have threads over here. I don't know when we will or ever. Where are you? I'm in Ireland, so it's some, um, oh. it's EU, again, something you probably yeah. know and I absolutely uh, do not. Uh, to end, probably on a lighter note, do you have a favourite tweet? Oh. Hard question, because there's quite literally been <laughs> millions so of them. Drill, so many good drill tweets. One of the drill ones my friend quoted at me the other day was the one about the candles, about budgeting. Someone help me budget this, please. My wife so is furious good. or whatever. So good. So there's one from Irish Twitter, and I don't know who this person is, but the username was Ash Prince underscore Nokia, and it was in 2018. And they're talking about going to a bar on Harcourt Street, which is like the main street where all the... Well, sorry, not the main street, but it's a street where there are a lot of pubs and nightclubs in Dublin and Ireland, right? So they tweeted and they said, the one time I ever went to Dicey's, I ordered a Desperados and asked for a lime slice with it. And the barman gestured to a pint glass full of lime slices. But I was so drunk that I poured my bottle into the pint glass and started sipping away. And then the barman shouted, my limes! 
It's always one that gets quoted among circles. If, or if you're out and you see a big thing of limes, you just go, my limes. And then five people you follow will get it and you just have an immediate kinship. But yeah, that's probably my fave. Uh, what's yours? It's funny. I just found this one that I loved. It's, it's the one that's blocked, 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 blocked. You're all blocked. None of you are free of sin. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of that a lot when I block people. So true. <laughs> Truly, none of us are free of sin. Um, Taylor, it's been such a pleasure. Before I let you go, let's talk about the book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence and Power on the Internet. I think you've given us a pretty good insight, but what else can people expect from the book? Yeah. Yeah, the book is about sort of the first 20 years of the social internet. Um, So it sort of starts with blog culture, you know, MySpace stars to Tumblr to Vine to Instagram, Snapchat, like the live streaming boom, Musical.ly. Um, and it's sort of about these platforms and how they kind of battled for dominance. And then also um, just how the content creators themselves shaped them, how this half a trillion dollar content creator influencer industry emerged and who actually built it. Because despite what Silicon Valley likes to say, it was not Silicon Valley. Um and so, yeah, I think it's like, I think it's a fun read. It's, I tried to write it. So like, it's like a pretty quick, fun read. It's like nostalgic. It's, there's a lot of pop culture in there. Um, and yeah, I just, I really hope people pre-order it. Pre-orders are like the only thing that matters for book sales. So if you're even remotely interested in this book, please pre-order it today. Pre-order the book. Don't be a rash. Pre-order the book, Flop Culture listeners. Taylor, what a pleasure. I'm going to let you go. I appreciate you giving me your time. Thank you so much for speaking to me on Flop Culture and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Taylor Lorenz's book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence and Power on the Internet is available everywhere on October 3rd. I cannot wait to read it. Please go get it. I believe all of Taylor's other links below. But following that conversation, I kind of wanted to get a bigger sense of how Twitter's downfall has impacted users who made their careers on the platform, and especially because I'm not on the platform myself anymore. So I decided to call in the big guns, the biggest, dirtiest guns, if you will, comedian Michael Fry, aka Big Dirty Fry, joined me to give his take on Twitter's demise. Michael Fry, you are so welcome to Flop Culture. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Um, you're so welcome. And I am keen to have you back for a more typical flap culture episode, but this one's a little bit different because we're talking mm-hmm. about Twitter. We just spoke to the great Taylor Lorenz, a journalist who spoke about how the platform started and its imminent downfall. But I thought it'd be interesting to speak to someone who kind of made their way on Twitter. I think I found you on Twitter initially, and that's mm. how I knew you originally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about how you found out about Twitter, your earliest memories of Twitter, why you even wanted to join, when did it come onto your radar that this might be a place you, uh, want to be on and share things? Yeah, I think I became aware of it, uh, when I was in fifth year. I know it's been a thing since like 2006, but this would have been like 2010, I would say, by the time I cottoned onto it or by the time I was old enough to use it, I would say properly. Um, and it was one of those things like, I think George Hook was on it at the time and it was like, he was kind of the only like Irish celebrity I think I knew Classic. on it. Uh, not that I followed George Hook or whatever. Um, but it was like kind of this thing where I knew he was on it and knew Stephen Fry was on it. And then it was this other thing where it was like, oh, it's where celebrities tweet photos of their breakfast. So it was never a thing where I was like, I want to be on there. That sounds boring as fuck. And we did see like, uh, one of my friends was on it when, uh, 
we were in school and we found his Twitter and we saw that all he did was reply to comedians and we were kind of like, man, that's sad. So we just didn't <laughs> didn't bother going on it. So um, it was just like very mundane or something. And then uh, I think I kind of got into it kind of kind of through sixth year and then once I left uh, school and went to college and stuff, and it was a way for me to keep in contact with people, but also like meet new people as well. Like um, I would have been a very shy teenager, uh, very kind of socially anxious or whatever. And I could be funny on the internet because I wasn't inhibited by the, the physical symptoms of anxiety or whatever. So in a way, it was a way for me to be myself and people seemed to like me on there. Uh, and I built all these relationships on it and just kept on it then. I was a regular user by the age of like, say, 18. And I was on and off it for years uh, or whatever, and then kind of um, blew up on it, I guess, kind of kind of later on. But I was using it to build community and make friendships with people and all that kind of stuff. So well before I started being a comedian or trying to be funny on purpose, I was kind of just throwing my thoughts out there and you kind of get the same things back and you get, you know, um, I was using it as a social networking site the way it, it should be used, the way most of these things should be used. And now suddenly I'm a, a content creator on it. So my my relationship with it has changed, but I still... You know, I still I still love it or I have done until very recently. Mm. So when was that moment when you blew up? Do you remember the first time when it when you were like mega super viral or that first kind of moment <laughs> of like, oh, lots of people are seeing this. That's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, I think um so I I was doing a grad program uh and I was living in a place called Coleraine. Uh, in Derry uh, not a whole lot to do in Coleraine I was very bored in the evenings and so because uh, I've been playing with music or whatever I discovered that I could have a conversation with myself using some of the software that I was using uh, and then I made a sketch uh, it was Teen Talk with Michael Teen and it was a parody of kind of news talk and at the time they were doing this thing like the 8th was a discussion uh, and the the eighth vote was a few months from that, actually. So there was this thing where, you know, you'd have panels full of men, maybe not specifically on TikTok, but kind of in, in Irish media in general, where you talk about women's issues with panels full of men, or you talk about uh, kind of teenagers with people who weren't teenagers and people who didn't have anything to do with teenagers. So it was mm. this thing where it was like, okay, teen talk with Michael Teen. And then my guests were like Simon Harris, the CEO of, uh, permanent TSB and Benjamin Netanyahu I think was it because I'd heard his name a lot I heard Benjamin Netanyahu on the news a lot so it was just like the, the intonation of that but yeah. I'd, I'd done that sketch and then suddenly people like say Carl Kinsella had retweeted it and he was on Joe and then suddenly it started going bigger into like the media sphere because it was such an obvious parody of stuff we are very familiar with and then I started doing more of them so I'd done three in maybe close succession and then you people like Blind Boy retweeted it and then there was a listicle on Joe.ie about it and then the Irish News and then uh, I think Kevin Bridges at one point retweeted it very early on. So it started to just snowball. Yeah. Uh, so it started to snowball to a point where it was like, wow, okay, this is uh, this is doing well. And maybe I am good at this because I've done several in a row that people seem to like and I'll keep doing it. And then, yeah, then it, it just kept going. And then I think lockdown was the second kind of spike uh, in my uh, followers and stuff because obviously everyone's at home and I was making video content um, when there was nothing else being made there was no panel shows even being made there was no you know there's no current content being made mm. other than online so a lot of those guys say Killian Sunderman or Sean Burke or Darren Conway that kind of wave of online guys we kind of suddenly arrived and suddenly we were legitimate because we were the only comedians making anything at the time so um but yeah, um, I think that's a brief history of, of how, how I've come to be. 
a brief history of Michael Fry. I love it. Yes. Yeah. What's the maddest or I suppose most memorable for you opportunity you got as a result of using Twitter because you said you kind of like you're not you're not described as an online comedian anymore you are a comedian in your own right but how how did that transition happen I suppose again any mad opportunities as a result because again, we're talking about this time of Twitter like lawless and as you said mm. made and has and continues to kind of maybe not so much recently uh, mm-hmm. made stars of people yeah, I've, I've, the, the first one, the first big one that brought me into kind of actual mainstream media, because a lot of us online guys, we still do value the idea of being on TV and being mm. in films and stuff like that because it's a legitimacy or whatever. It's kind of your dream when you're a kid. Uh, but I was contacted by Kathy Burke, uh, the comedian who was directing uh, an adaptation of Graham Norton's book, Holding, uh, and it was going to be on ITV. And she was like, do you want to be in it? And I was like, Yes. <laughs> so, um, so let me think me. about that, Cathy. A fucking course I do. Yeah. So she cast me in it. And, it, you know, the cast was insane. Like, Paulie McGlynn from Father Ted was in it. There was um, the, the guy who plays Varys from Game of Thrones. There was Siobhan McSweeney from Derry Girls. There was all these kind of big stars in it. Uh, Brenda Fricker as well. And then me, which I thought was insane. Uh, and then obviously the the very big one, the big one that I'm kind of most proud of and the thing that I say to people all the time when they're like, where have I seen you before? It's Derry Girls. I was asked to audition for Derry Girls by Lisa McGee on there. Uh, and I found out later there was maybe six others or kind of a few other kind of Northern Irish comedians or whatever, including say Shane Todd, who had auditioned for the same part. And I somehow got that. But it was because Kathy and because Lisa had come across me on Twitter and that was what was great about it is that like I was in contact with journalists so I got lots of media slots we've done a lot of kind of panels together I think um we've you know journalists producers um I got my work from uh, I, I do a podcast at BBC Sounds called the Michael Fry show I've done two series of that through uh the producer knowing me through Twitter I've been in contact with other people who you know I'm talking to TV people about it and all that kind of stuff it was a really good way to network professionally on there because those kinds of people were on Twitter. Um, and I just feel like that's gone a little bit. It's not, I, I feel like it's not as open there anymore because those people have maybe moved on. There aren't as many people on Twitter anymore because of the state of it at the moment. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next. Like, mm. when did you first notice that transition into Twitter being something else, like a totally different beast, I suppose, from the perspective of your comedy content and then even just using it as like that place to enjoy and share with the community when when was that moment for you that you were like oh something has gone horribly awry here this isn't nice anymore yeah I think I think the first time I was worried about it uh was well before Musk took over it's when they brought in the algorithmically generated home timeline and that was when it was like, oh, shite, this is, it's turning into Facebook, you know? Uh, and that was my fear. It, it kind of resisted that for a, a long time uh, or whatever. But there's a, a process uh, that I'm sure you've seen discussed on online before, that a term you've seen before called inshitification, uh, that I'm sure <laughs> Taylor's probably mentioned, or I'm sure she mentions in her book, where it's, uh, it's a way to describe platform decay. So there's a guy called Corey Doctorov in Wired magazine, I think, came up with this thing. And it's the idea that like, when social media networks start first, they're great for users. 
And then there's something not so great for users and they're more business focused. And that's where the algorithmically generated timelines come in. Uh, and then it's suddenly, you know, they're losing money because nobody wants to be on there anymore and they try and claw it back. And that's why we have Facebook now showing me videos of people pouring resin into things and restoring knives instead of anything my friends wanted to, wanted to post, you know. So I think once the shift into algorithmically generated stuff started happening, that's when things... I, I think started to decline, but not so much because I think lockdown was a big part of Twitter staying relevant. Um, but once Musk took over, uh, and particularly when he took verification and turned it into, like he he enshitified <laughs> verification for want of a better word. Um, like I, w- I was verified because a, a staff member at Twitter had seen me and was wanted me to be involved in some campaign uh, that it didn't suit me. But then they were like, you know, is there anything we can help with, you know, we could verify it, we can give you longer videos. And I said yes to those two things um, because it gave me like a, a sense of legitimacy or whatever. Yeah, People knew it, it, it was Yeah, it makes sense me. at that point in your career when you're trying to actually make a name for yourself and be like, this is me. And especially also prevent against, cop- against copycats. Like, and the longer video, that just makes, that's common sense. Yeah, it makes yeah. complete sense. Uh, that was then taken away from me and you could pay $8 and the people who would normally be in show replies... Uh, which was a function to protect you from uh, stupid bullshit from dickheads, right, Uh, are now at the very top of all threads. So before, when you were having a discussion on Twitter, when somebody tweeted something, the next reply would be the one that got the most likes, that people engaged with the most, all that kind of stuff. So sometimes if you're looking at, say, arguments or whatever, um, or discussions, you would see a counterpoint that might have had some useful information in it or whatever. It didn't always happen. Like, Twitter has always been a bit of a cesspool. There's always freaks and losers on there. Um, But if I wanted more information on a topic, I would click into replies and have a look. I don't feel... like compelled to do that anymore because any popular tweet now has replies from some of the most tedious people alive you know and the way I saw Twitter before was kind of like a house party where you could flit in and out conversations and you could join conversations and you could have a good time that way and now it's like people you didn't want at the house party are now the loudest people in the room and it's just a shit time for everyone you know and I Mm. think it, it plays into this idea like, it's almost like a, a jealousy thing where it's like, oh, well, I'm not getting any attention here. Or These people are getting attention. And it's almost like, you know, when journalists and, and doctors and stuff like that are verified, you have these people being like, well, my opinion should hold the same weight as those those people. And that just shouldn't happen. You know, <laughs> as in like you, you don't have the same expertise. You aren't as well liked. You aren't as followed. You, you know, why, why should your opinion be boosted to the top? But that's what's happening now. And like people who were, um, I think there was a phrase called power users, which sounds very wanky. But like the reason why people came on Twitter was to follow uh, creators and celebrities and all that kind of stuff. And when you take that away, you take the reason why people come on Twitter away and you replace it with, here's a group of fucking nerds who love Elon Musk. It's just not as fun an experience. So people are leaving to different sites like Mastodon or um, Blue Sky. Threads isn't really a thing in Ireland because of the the GDPR kind of thing. I think it's more of a UK thing. Um, but it hasn't taken off here because of privacy issues. But I, I do see a mass exodus, particularly to Blue Sky in recent months, but Mastodon at first as well. And I think it's just going to peter out we're just going to stop using it like we did Facebook and, and Snapchat and other platforms who decided to set themselves on fire. Have you yeah. found yourself migrating to other platforms for your comedy content? And what's that experience been like in comparison to the glory days of Twitter? 
Yeah, I mean, because I went through my archive there. I, I had a, a Edinburgh Fringe show, so I was looking for kind of, is there anything in my previous content that I could expand on or do live or whatever? And the numbers were so different, you know, in terms of like, I was getting thousands of favourites for stuff that wasn't even that funny. And now you're kind of, you are struggling to get any engagement whatsoever. Um but yeah, I've, I I think I've always, it's always been in the back of my head that Twitter could implode one day uh, in the same way that Snapchat, you know, changed their, their, um, I can't, they changed the home screen. I can't remember what they did, but I do remember like both Kylie Jenner and Rihanna one weekend saying it was shite and then wiping like a billion, <laughs> billion dollars off the share price. I had this kind of thing that like eventually they're going to change something about it. Uh, or the company will collapse, or there's something is going to happen where it's just taken down and you need to diversify. So I am on Facebook and I'm on, you know, sorry, not really. I don't post to Facebook. I'm on Instagram and I'm on YouTube and I'm on TikTok and I'm on, you know, Blue Sky Mastodon. I don't post as regularly on Blue Sky Mastodon, but it's like, I think that's probably where we're going to migrate to. But I always have Instagram or I always have a backup just in case. Uh, and it's a lot nicer um, Instagram in particular is a lot nicer a platform than Twitter is. And now I do find myself nervous if I'm posting anything that a load of dickheads are going to show up in my mentions, um, which wasn't really a worry for me before. I know it sounds very, it's privileged to me to say that because, I mean, my female colleagues and a lot of journalists and stuff like that have dickheads at their mentions all the time and always have done. But I feel like there's a, a higher concentration of dickheads on the platform now than there ever has been. Two-part question. Because uh, initially I was just going to ask you your favourite tweet, which I would still like to know. Mm. But I'd also like yeah. to know your favourite kind of piece of content or just maybe something you have nice memories around that you yourself posted on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's like anything that happened over lockdown, I think. Any of those ones I posted got really good kind of feedback. I think the one I, I really like at the moment and I posted it on New Year's Eve was the Spongebob old man story. Because I'm, you know, it's somehow, it's done the rounds on Tumblr and it's, uh, I had this person in, who messaged me saying that, you know, their wife was in a hospice and they'd found that video and they found my videos and they really enjoyed it. Uh, and it was kind of like, I had a really nice, they, they were like, we have really nice memories of watching you before she passed. And I was like, oh my God, you know. Um, but that's the, those are the things that like, I think people can hmm. be really flippant about social networks and social media, like online content and stuff. And it's like, how can you be, when you get hear a story like that from someone where Mm. there was a genuine connection that they had to a load of pixels you put on a screen? Like, that's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's so nice. You know, and I I got some really, really lovely responses to that video in particular. And, uh, you know, a lot of kind of, obviously, like it's a a piece of, of queer content. So a lot of kind of LGBT people kind of replied to me and there's this person who said oh I actually had a tattoo of uh I am yours and you are mine and it, which is a quote from the you know it wasn't they didn't tattoo it from the video but it was just like it so happened to be something they had tattooed on themselves mm. uh them and their partner or whatever so it was I got some really lovely responses to that and it was kind of like okay yeah I'm capable of of some really nice things here and and people do appreciate it and it was kind of like you know particularly at a time when all your engagement's going down it was like okay well you can still pull out something really good uh, every so often. Um, but my favourite tweets, and I have a list of them here because it's so hard to pick a favourite one because it changes all the time. An impossible question. Um, Hit me. Hit me with the list. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. Okay. So um, one of yours I really liked was the time of, uh, I can't, was it was it Longitude and there's some guy doing press-ups <laughs> and, he him and you're like, get a life. And I think about that all the time. We regularly <laughs> use that as a soundbite on this podcast and Adam's probably going to put it in here right now. 
ฮะยัดสมบังเออฮะยัดสมบังเออสบักอะไรเดนอตเซนดิ้งเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดียวเดีย
uh, or whatever, there was always going to be a, a kind of logical end to a social network the same way as Bebo did in the past or MySpace or whatever. Uh, it's just taken a bit longer this time. But, you know, uh, I do remember it really fondly or will in the future. So, um, yeah, I'm sad, sad to see that it's on flop culture, that it's I now know. currently mid-flop, you know. What a shame. What, well, the minute they were, the minute he started bandying around that X, I was like, right, get it on the list. This is Oh, yeah, I refuse to refer to X. Do you know, I, I just won't. I haven't done it at any point during this interview and I never will in the future. I think it's the stupidest thing in the world. Oh, fuck him, I hate him so much. Shameful, shameful. <laughs> yeah. uh, Michael, what a pleasure. I will say again, I need you back next season. So think of the flop. You have so much time. You've yeah, so much yeah. time. You're more than welcome. Doors always open. Where can people find you beyond Twitter if they want to hear some jokes? I don't know if you're doing any shows, but if you're not, you're on the other platforms. Big yourself up, shout yourself out. Where can people find you? Yeah, so I don't have any live shows at the moment, but I am on other social media under at Big Dirty Fry on all platforms. The Michael Fry Show is available to stream on BBC Sounds. You can get that in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, you just have to download the app, but it's it's good stuff. Uh, and yeah, you're gonna you're gonna see more of me in future. I'm working on some stuff with uh, Sean Burke and Alan Morton. Uh, we're doing a work in progress in Edinburgh uh, at the end of October. Um, and then apart from that, there's just there'll be stuff in the pipeline that I'll announce later uh, that I don't quite have now. But yeah, big dirty fry on all platforms. So exciting! What a tease! I love it, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me on Flop Culture. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me on. Big, big thanks again to Michael. I can't wait to have him back. And similarly, I will leave all of his links below. Finally, top of the flops this week. You're a flop. Top of the flops this week is presenter Lawrence Fox, GB News presenter Lawrence Fox. He went on a misogynistic on-air rant about a political journalist named Ava Evans, uh, in which he basically talked about how no one would want to have sex with her. He called her a little woman. He went on to say, this is the full sentence, uh, trigger warning, show me a single self-respecting man that would like to climb into bed with that woman ever, ever, who wasn't an incel. We need powerful, strong, amazing women who make great points for themselves. We don't need these sort of feminist 4.0. That sentence doesn't make sense, but whatever. They're pathetic and embarrassing. Who'd want to shag that? Sorry, it's true though. Uh, GB News has suspended him and they've said they're launching an internal investigation. I'd like to see how long that would last. And you know what? In times like this, girls, I think there'd be an argument about, you know, when they go low, we go high. No, girls, I'm going to go low. The neck of this man, the man, a man who looks like an inside-out duvet cover, right, talking about how anyone looks and about whether anyone would want to have sex with another person, when this man is still riding off the high of being previously married to fucking Billy Piper. Shut up. Shut up. And like, the gall of anyone to, you know, he's described as an actor. What was the last thing he was in that had any impact or significance? Man has made a career off being a mouthpiece and that's how he should be described. Mouthpiece. Victorian, ghost child, anemic, mouthpiece, Lawrence Fox. Get a life. Get a life! And with that, I will bid you adieu. Flop Culture returns next week. And for the month of October, we're going spooky with our flops. And for the first one, we're not just going spooky, girls. We're going waxy. My name is Fanula Jones. This has been Flop Culture. Editing was done by the gorgeous Adam Shanahan. Until next week, goodbye. Please stay safe.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.